0: Hockey PDO cast, my name is Dimitri Filipovich, and joining me is my good buddy Jack Fraser. Jack, what's going on, man?
1: Uh, it is like 30 degrees in Toronto right now. So there we go, playoff hockey I'm, I'm, weather. I know. Well, While I was writing my playoff previews yesterday, I was looking out the window, feeling extremely upset, but they're done. Once I'm out of here, I will be hopping outside and not coming back in until it's very dark out. I love it. Okay, and also
0: joining us today is another Jack, Jack Han. Jack, what's going on, man?
2: Well, it's 23 degrees in Montreal, which is uh, pretty much perfect. So I, I'm actually outside right now.
0: <laughs> so for the purposes of today's show, just because it's going to be very confusing with two jacks as the guests, I'm going to be referring to you guys as Fraser and Han, just so the listeners know. Um, This is the plan for today. We're going to preview five of the first round matchups. We're going to go about 10 minutes per series, and then we'll finish up with the three leftover ones we've got on Tuesday. Um, People that have listened to the PDO cast for years now know that I love doing the preview series, but I find like the actual predictions themselves in terms of trying to say who's going to win or how many games it's going to be in the most boring part. Everyone does them. I think most previews are pretty superficial in that way. I like to try to do something a little different here. Um, And so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to identify meaningful trends for these teams, how they match up with each other, potentially exploitable strengths and weaknesses, little details to keep an eye out for when watching these games. Uh, round one of the playoffs is, is, is just my absolute favorite. There's like four games on every night and it's just the best. And so we're going to try to help people get ready for it with some last minute prep. So Han, I'm going to give you the floor here first. We're going to start with Panthers Bruins. And I don't think it's a hot take at all, but you framed it as a very dramatic statement that you think that the Panthers have a chance of at least giving the Bruins some some danger or some trouble in the series. I'll give you the floor here. Let the listeners know why you feel like, why you feel that way and why you feel like Florida presents an interesting matchup for a team of the one 65 games or whatever in the regular season.
2: Okay. So, uh, you know, like some people on Twitter have, uh, had some pretty strong reactions to, uh, my assertion that, uh, the Bruins should be on upset alert. Uh, my first rationale for this is, you know, having grown up in Montreal, um, whenever you get a one versus eight situation as the Bruins uh, and you've had a really good regular season, it's time to be a little bit nervous. So I'm talking about whether it's 2002, whether it's 2004, whether it's, uh, you know, 2014, like it's happened so many times that the Boston Bruins, like after having a great regular season for whatever reason, just they can't get over the hump in the playoffs. And I'm not saying it's going to happen again. I'm just saying it's a possibility because like I'm watching these Florida Panthers and of course they have warts. Of course they've got weaknesses. Of course they didn't have a great regular season, but this is a better team than a lot of the, you know, eight seed upsets uh, I've seen in my lifetime. Like the Florida Panthers, if you're uh, a league leading team looking at a first round opponent, you should be scared of the Panthers just because they have the high end skill. They play at a really high tempo. The goal tending is a big question mark, but uh, you know, Bobrovsky uh, was in nets for one of the great upsets in the cap era, and Alex Lyons playing at a 940 pace for the past six or seven games. So, uh, again, you know, I don't know what, what really is going to happen, but uh, if you're the Boston Bruins, you've got to be ready because, you know, the worst could happen.
0: Well, Fraser, I, I think from statistical perspective, right, the Bruins won 65 games. They had more regulation wins. Than any team had total wins, period. And yet, I think any project- projection model where the salt is going to give the Panthers somewhere between 25 to 30% chance of winning this series. And I think that's an important disclaimer here, right? Because as big of a favorite as the Bruins are, as dominant as the regular season was, just because of the nature of the playoffs and a best of seven and how this stuff works and all of the historical stuff we need to keep in mind, a 25 to to 30% chance is still a pretty high likelihood of something happening, even though it seems like it would be a major upset. It's
1: actually very within the range of outcomes. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, the Panthers are not your usual eighth seed that they would be facing. I mean, they score the third uh, the third most uh, goals out of five on five this year. Usually you're not talking about a president's trophy team having to face a team that good offensively. Uh, you know, I, I think Jack touched- touches on it in his article, uh, Other Jack. Uh, I think they pose some stylistic challenges for Boston, a team that's kind of staked everything defensively on their puck movers. Uh, The fact that Florida is such an effective four check team and makes it so difficult for uh, opponents to break the puck out cleanly of the zone. I mean, that could be, I I could absolutely see a situation where the Bruins just get massively frustrated uh, the entire series long and they have so much pressure on them with the way the Panthers have been playing recently, the way they've, been controlling chances and and shots all season, but now they're finally starting to get, you know, the actual goal support to back it up. Uh, this really doesn't seem like a usual presence Trophy versus the 16th seed situation. Like this is, and certainly not an even matchup. The Bruins are uh, an amazing team. They're you know their record isn't completely flimsy, but I, I mean, th- this Panthers team could surprise a lot of people with with how they face this Bruins team and. I would like the Bruins to win because I don't want to have to watch that Florida Panthers camera through a long playoff run, but it would be entertaining to watch. I think it's going to be, especially if they make it to round
0: two, it'll be a national broadcast. And I think they do change it because they played the Leafs the other day on ESPN and uh, or on TNT and it was a better camera angle. So hopefully that would fix that. But Han, you made an interesting point in your article there about um, the tempo or the preference that these two teams would have in terms of how they would like to play their ideal game. And, the Bruins play in a very controlled manner, right? Like their preference is to control possession to kind of methodically pick you apart with very intricate, precise passing plays. And we know that in the playoffs, um, you know, things can fall apart in that regard. There can be weird bounces. The ice can become bad, you know, officiating can become hit or miss. You, do, you never know what's going to happen. And it's very easy once you've had this type of success suddenly it starts going south. You get frustrated. You lose composure. The Panthers are certainly going to come into this. They only have really that one gear, right? It's like absolute maximum aggression. Even under Paul Maurice, they, they generate so many shots and high danger chances. They play at such a fast pace. They give up a lot themselves, but they're comfortable playing that way. They... I think they they led the league in penalties taken and they drew like the second or third most like there's always something happening in Panthers games there's never really a dull moment and I think if they're going to go out of their way to try to drag the Bruins into that kind of like an uncomfortable fast-paced high-event environment that's where I could see Boston having a little bit of trouble.
2: So uh to to build on on your points there there's two things that I think is important to talk about uh in terms of this series that maybe um other people kind of overlook first of all is is that the bruins is an older team right and the reason why they're able to win so many games during the regular season was because uh as i mentioned in in my preview article they they play at a medium pace which means that they have the puck under sticks but they're looking to make control plays use the width of the ice you know being creative and using their skills um and, and you know being you know having worked in toronto uh a few years ago with the Leafs, like that style of play tends to break down in the playoffs if you don't have a good plan B um, just because, you know, there's more physicality, the tempo is a little bit quicker, you have a little bit less time to think and a little bit less time to make play. So I think, again, like, that's one of the reasons why I I think the Bruins may be unpleasantly surprised with this series, and the second reason is the ice quality. So one of the most underrated things about playoff hockey is that uh, obviously you know now what, the weather is getting warmer and warmer. So it's uh, it's 30 degrees in Toronto, which is like almost 90 degrees Fahrenheit. It's 23 in Montreal, which is like about 80. Um, whether we're talking about Boston or about Florida, the ambient temperature outside is going to be a lot warmer. And because it's going to be a full building, uh, the ice crews are going to have a challenging time keeping the ice uh, hard and crisp enough for that kind of puck possession style to, to work flawlessly. So, again, when I think back of the times when the leafs lost in the first round, a lot of times you see the puck bouncing or, you know, kind of taking weird hops uh because the ice isn't as nice as it was in the dead of winter so whether it's in Florida whether it's in Boston I think that's going to be an issue
0: mm-hmm. well Fraser I guess my issue from a Panthers perspective if you're trying to cobble together the the makings of an upset here I know that they changed or diversified by design their offensive approach a bit in the offseason right they make the big trade they bring in Matthew Kachuk they they change coaches As the season went along, I think they kind of gravitated back more towards definitely trying to attack off the rush. That's clearly when they're at their best and when they're at their most dangerous when they're aggressively pushing the tempo in that way. They're going to go up against this Bruins team where I think you could say Carolina maybe has the best transition D, but for my money, the Bruins do in terms of getting back, uh, providing defensive support, challenging the blue line, not really giving you any clean looks off entries. And so the Panthers are really going to have to, I guess test their metal in terms of how much they've changed in their ability to sort of dump the puck past them and then work the forecheck and create that way because I don't think they're going to have that quality or volume of rush chances that they maybe need when they're at their absolute best offensively. So is that a bit of a concern for you or do you think they're actually better suited for, for kind of creating in that type of game environment in this series compared to last year?
1: well I think they can do both like you said they do have a very diversified approach compared to what they were rolling with previously I, I mean you know the numbers that I have from uh all three zones have them at uh second in the league in terms of creating non-rush offense uh now how that translated to goals compared to their rush chances considering the difficulties they had finishing earlier in the season uh maybe a good question and they're facing arguably the best goalie in the league this year um I I mean the real challenge for the Panthers overall, is, and it's kind of sounding almost like we're sleeping on the Bruins just because it's <laughs> so taken for granted that they're an amazing team, is that they're an unbelievable defensive team. Like they are best at limiting chances. Uh, they allowed the fewest goals this year. Any team is going to have a lot of trouble creating anything against them, uh, whether it's off the rush or within the defensive zone. Like They have really bolstered their defense. I mean, adding Dimitri Orlov has given them that whole new... Uh, outlook defensively. It really is going to be a matter of how well they're able to retrieve pucks that they dump in past the uh the defenseman because that's something that they really excelled at so far this season. Uh and, and whether they're actually going to be able to establish lengthy offensive zone possessions against the Bruins team that is pretty good at disrupting them and getting the puck up the ice.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think the Bruins are, are very well suited, especially compared to past years of of dealing with an aggressive forecheck like that, whether it's McAvoy or Orlov or Lindholm or Avi, even if you get down to Clifton and and Grizzly, like I think they've got guys who who can handle themselves and acquit themselves quite nicely there. And I think the Orlov addition is really going to pay dividends in, in this type of matchup. But Han, you had made an interesting point there about one weakness for the Panthers this season was their special teams, but in particular their penalty kill and they lead the league in, in penalties taken. And part of that aggressive approach is sometimes you're going to go over the line, whether it's making a mistake on a pinch or potentially getting involved in like a post whistle skirmish and taking a dumb penalty. And whether it's Kachuk or Goudis or Lomberg or, or Bennett, if he comes back in this series, they've got a guys who cert a lot of guys who certainly sometimes I guess lack discipline or, or, or would take a lot of penalties and the Bruins' power play was, I think, only tenth in the league in efficiency this season, which is great for anyone else, but for them, it is like one of the worst things they 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 did. I still think that undersells how good they are with that extra space in the offensive zone, passing it around and picking you apart. And there's going to be a lot of space in the middle of the ice there for them to get it to Patrice Bergeron. I, I do think if they can keep their composure and stay out of the box and just let the Pan- Panthers make mistakes, they're eventually like talent will win out and they'll be able to pick them apart. And I think destroying their penalty kill with that power play of theirs is going to be a big part of that.
2: Yeah, I mean I I don't foresee the Panthers changing their their PK scheme for the playoffs. Uh obviously, uh there's no reason for Boston to really change their power play uh you know early in the season they they had a few different looks because of injuries. They used a 5-4 power play for a little bit which uh which wasn't great. It was okay. But but I think with what the Bruins like to do on the power play, which is get the puck to Bergeron in the middle of the ice or uh, find a seam pass to Pasternak, uh, the Panthers' diamond PK just isn't really equipped to defend those high danger threats. So, you know, for, for from the, the Panthers' point of view, either you're hoping for a lot of even up calls, or you're hoping not to get called for penalties at all, because otherwise, it's you know, the, it could really turn in, in Boston's favor. Yeah. Yeah, I just think
0: especially the depth, like I think eventually the Bruins, even if they have a bit of trouble in the early going, kind of adjusting to where how the Panthers want to play Razor, I think they're going to pick them apart. I think the depth, I think the fact that just thinking about this Bruins team generally, even when a team has a lot of regular season success, they have one obvious weakness where you're like, all right, in a, in a bad matchup, this team can really sort of exploit this, right? Whether it's a defense pair or whether it's a certain game state. And with this Bruins team just across the board, like they were the best at they they gave they scored the second most goals. They gave up the fewest. They were the best of five-on-five goal differential. They were top ten power play, best in the penalty kill. They can win 2-1 or 5-4. They have the goalie who's going to win the Besna. Uh, especially after the deadline, adding Orlov and Bertuzzi. It, I'm comfortable with pretty much any combination of players they have on the ice. And so it's not necessarily a stars and scrubs approach. Like it's balanced throughout. I just ultimately I keep going back to like I I don't know if the Panthers are gonna have enough talent throughout their lineup to eventually hold up because I I think at the end of the day in a seven game series, the Bruins will win out in some way. It might be certainly more competitive than I think you'd think based on an eight one, but um, I don't know. This Bruins team is just so good. I did want to make that point because it does feel like we're like talking very dramatically about this Panthers team putting together an upset at the end of the day. I think we all agree that the Bruins will win this series. So I just wanted to kind of, kind of clarify that there.
1: Yep. Yep. Agreed. And and one way that the Bruins could, away the panthers early on is uh cam Sharon has done good research into the patterns of penalties getting called uh early in series and you know because the average number of minor penalties does go up during the playoffs a lot of that is because of the first round and specifically the first couple games of the first round so if florida starts getting into penalty trouble early then that power play advantage that the bruins have could end up giving them a, a big advantage in the first couple games which i think would allow or would at least prevent the Panthers from kind of seizing momentum early on in the series and really putting a scare in, in this Bruins team, which could be beneficial.
0: Okay. Um, is there any other notes on on this series that either you wanted to get to, or should we move on to the next one?
2: Well, the the last thing I want to say on this is I, I agree with both of you that Boston is is the favorite, and I would expect them to move on. But remember what happened the last time the Bruins won the Stanley Cup? Well, they got pushed to Game 7 overtime montreal on the first round in 2011 if memory serves so Mm -hmm. uh it might not be the worst thing ever to get a first first round that's a tough draw because it forces you to play your best right away it forces you to not not have to pace yourself and perhaps that sets you up for for a good run
0: yeah um okay let's do leafs lightning so forget the names forget the preceding playoff reputations of both teams just purely looking at this series tactically on ice I think it provides some of the most interesting stuff to consider out of any of the eight. Um, Han, I'll let you go first here. What's, what are you, what are you watching for in this series in terms of a specific matchup or how you think the games are going to play out or who you think is going to dictate the terms of the of the way the games are being played? Because I think there's any number of ways to go. I'm curious what your kind of fascination is with this one.
2: So having watched a lot of both teams during the regular season, like I don't see a ton of changes from an X's and O's perspective necessarily. Um, what, what I'm really going to focus on is how, uh, how and how much uh, both head coaches deploy their players. So mm-hmm. if you look at the average time on ice for uh, the Leafs and for the Lightning throughout the season, you'll see that the Leafs, obviously the top players play more but there's much more of a distinct gap in usage um, in terms of quantity of ice time between the lightning's top six and bottom six and the lightning's top two defensemen, which are Hedman and Sergeyev versus the rest. So basically you're going to look for Toronto to really leverage their, their, uh, their depth. They're certainly going to get their stars more minutes, but it's going to be a more gradual drop-off. Whereas for Tampa, um, you know they're really going to lean on their top two lines, which have been excellent, and also on their top two defensemen, with the other players kind of taking on more spot duty. So, if um, if that maintains, then perhaps you would think that Toronto would have the advantage because their players are going to be fresher. But Tampa's top of the lineup is so strong that uh, you know if they're able to really ride their horses and and, and have them perform. Uh, this could go all the way to game seven again.
0: Yeah. Well Fraser, I I I think the Leafs are objectively the better team heading into this series. Like they're, I think in my for my money, they're in the driver's seat, I guess, is a better way to put it. And it's not just because they had a better regular season and better numbers across the board. Like I just think they have more cards to play with their personnel. Um, a lot of versatility and also a lot of options. And if they choose to play the right ones, I think they can do things to the lightning that tampa just at this point like isn't really equipped to handle especially from from a speed and a depth perspective now whether the leafs wind up settling on that and deciding to play that way is a different question i think they've already shown plenty of evidence that they seem kind of like fixated on on i guess proving a point by beating the lightning at their own game and, and playing a certain type of way in the playoffs as opposed to just you know taking the risky approach and just playing the best hockey players they can, regardless of skill sets, they've clearly gone in a certain direction to try and finally get over the hump and beat this team. And so that's kind of what I'm going to be watching in terms of who they're playing and I guess how they're playing them because the Leafs have a couple ways to go. Whereas I think with the Lightning, we kind of know what we're going
1: to get from them. Yeah, I the Leafs have definitely made very specific and, and you know targeted decisions in the player personnel they've added, especially in the bottom six. That would be a big question for me would be if the Leafs, top guys aren't scoring at the rate that they need to, whether they have the offensive depth to put the puck in the net. Cause they re- I mean, you know, their bottom six is really focused on guys like Achari and Aston Reese and, you know, David camp, you know, guys who maybe once in a while can chip in some offense, but who you can't really rely upon uh, to do that. You know, they're more kind of forechecking low event types of players. Um, but, you know, at the same time, I, I, I like the point that, that Jack made about, the ice time allocation, and one thing that interests me looking at how the Leafs deploy their defense this year is that they really have lightened the load on Morgan Riley compared to the last couple seasons. Mm-hmm. I think his average time on ice per game is down by about two minutes. Uh, they're really trusting TJ Brody more. They're giving a lot of minutes to Jake McCabe and, and Mark Giordano, and I think that could be a real turning point for them uh, in trying to shut down this Lightning team because that top line from the Lightning really gave the Leafs massive problems in the last series uh was a big reason that they ultimately ended up winning um one extra factor that i'm kind of interested about is that last playoffs i know that the the lightning forward checkers were giving the leafs a lot of trouble they were forcing mm-hmm. a lot of turnovers especially in those last couple of games um i wonder about tanner Janot because i think he's become kind of a bit of a punchline since the deadline because you know he's only got the three assists or the one goal and Uh, You know, part of that, of course, uh, is uh, some very unbeneficial, honest shooting. Some of it, as Jack has pointed out in his own newsletter, is uh, maybe not the best strategizing on on his part to get to the net compared to what he was doing uh, in Nashville. But in terms of getting in on the forecheck and forcing turnovers, I feel like how good he is at retrieving pucks, but also at playing the body could give the Leafs transition D a lot of pause and maybe cause some, some big problems, uh, especially for some of their more ambitious offensive players uh, in the defensive zone, which could be a big
0: factor. I agree. I'm not sure if he's even going to play. It seems like he's going to be out in game one, at least That oh, on John He, Cooper's he comments. got, he he got he, hurt. Yeah. That
1: horrible injury. Yeah. He right? got
0: rolled up on and he hasn't been ruled out. Apparently he avoided worst case scenario, but yeah, um, I think it's very TBD in terms of what kind of impact he's going to have in the series. But I agree with the general point, definitely, right? Like yeah. the Lightning, if you look at Corey Schneider's tracking, create the fourth highest rate of shots off the forecheck, it's a very heavy forecheck in particular. Like they really go after it and, and punish you. And Han, I think the Leafs had had concerns about like how a guy like Sandine would hold up in an environment. And that's why I think they were comfortable moving him. I think that's why they're a bit unsure about Lilligren in this role, even though he's pretty clearly objectively a better hockey player than Luke Shen, but they just feel like Shen's a bit safer in that regard. And and so I think Shen's quote was pretty telling about like, sometimes it's okay to, to just make the safe play out of the zone and uh, rather than kind of forcing it where the Leafs have gotten into trouble in the past, sometimes turning it over in front of their own net. Now I think, I disagree that they should just be like punting the puck out of the zone whenever. But I think once you can get it into the middle of the ice and in the air against this Lightning team, that's where they have success against them in the past because they don't have great foot speed. Any of their defenders, even Hedman, and the Leafs have a speed advantage. And so if they can skate into it and pressure them in that way, I think they can force them into turnovers. And so. I completely agree with the point about the forecheck and I think about it on both sides because I think this is kind of the forechecking series, right? Whichever team is able to punish the other team's defense more in that regard, I think is going to be able to to come out on top and create significantly more chances than their opposition.
1: Yeah. So hopefully Tanner Janot's leg is bent the right way at mm. this point and we can see him a little bit in this series.
0: Yeah. Han, how do you feel about um, those points on kind of the forecheck and? the Leafs defensemen and how they're going to try to deal with, with Tampa Bay's guys. And then, and then vice versa, how the Leafs can sort of target some of the slower defensemen that the Lightning have on the back end.
2: So I, I absolutely agree that this is going to be a four check uh, driven series. Both teams are really good on the four check. We saw that for most of the series last year through seven games. I actually think the Leafs, uh, they've got a lot of flexibility because as you said, like if they need somebody to be uh, more physical and, and kind of, it simple, they got Luke Shen, but also they got Lilligren, who who you know plays a, a very nice two way transition game that that's more of a skater and uses his stick to defend. And if they need more offense from the back end, they've got Eric Gustafson, who's kind of been like a super sub of sorts for uh, a variety of teams in the past years. And you know, for my money, he offensively he's as good as sandin is right now, except Sandine is obviously far younger and you know has more potential. Gustafson is 30, but What he does now, I think, is really good if you're looking for a defenseman to move the puck. The one player that I would watch every single shift of series is Mikhail Sergachev. So Sergachev is a guy who's uh, been deployed in more of a sheltered role uh, during Tampa's two cup runs. This season, he's only behind Hedman in terms of average time on ice uh, in all situations. Uh, This is a player who is very good, certainly, but under pressure he does make mistakes mm-hmm. so if the least four checkers hit him on a regular basis when he's coming back for retrievals forces him to make decisions when defending a rush uh he may break down and if he breaks down the entire lightning's decor breaks down because then you're asking heaven to do way too much and players like chernak and cole are much more comfortable shutting down than chasing game uh and making plays
0: I completely agree with that. The uh, Sergachev in particular makes a lot of mistakes. Pretty much everyone in this blue line makes mistakes when they're under pressure. We saw in the Stanley Cup final last year what Valachushkin and the Avs project did to them and how they just obliterated them and picked them apart. And Fraser, I think the headman point is interesting here because I, I don't really know what to make of his season. We've seen him kind of Pace himself through the regular season in the past at times when he was hurt and then he kind of flipped the switch and turn it on and, and look like him vintage self in the playoffs. Uh, his rush defense dropped a bit this season, which is a bit of a concern in terms of like foot speed and being able to handle it. His uh, five on five on ice expected goals and shot shares fell under the 50% mark for the first time in over a decade. Now he played with this revolving door of, you know, he pretty much played with literally every defenseman they had, whether it was Bogosian, Perbeck's foot, Cole, Sergachev, Chernak, anyone you name, he played a, a reasonable amount of time with them. So I don't, I don't know what to do with that in terms of what we should we should expect from him and, and how they're going to use him because McDonough is gone, so that McDonough-Chernak pair won't be able to take the defensive assignments, and so it becomes tougher to sort of free headman up to to roam offensively, and then you don't even know who he's going to be playing with, so I just don't know really what to expect from him in this series.
1: Yeah, no, you can tell that he had a down season by the fact that I just did a in Norris and he finished like 20th, <laughs> Which usually he gets at least in the top ten, yes, purely just purely on, on reputation alone. Yeah. You know, even factoring out his play. Yeah, I, I mean, that has been kind of the crazy thing with Headman's numbers this season is just how the defensive impacts have completely collapsed. And like you said, I, you know, this isn't the first time that his numbers have dropped and then suddenly shot back up. So, so maybe we're going to see him snap back to his old self. But I mean, the Lightning definitely made a choice when they didn't target a partner for him at the trade deadline. I mean, we did our deadline preview show and we were pretty convinced that somebody was going to end up coming to Tampa Bay to play with him. Uh, they chose to focus on a forechecking winger instead. So that didn't happen. Uh, I, it, that's going to be a, a huge question. If they don't have a dedicated matchup pair and Hedman ends up falling into that role and they give surgachev the more, you know, offensive zone starts and, and, and things like that, then, depending on who they have playing with him it's going to put a massive amount of pressure on him and it will be interesting to see how he responds to it Mm -hmm. because at his peak and and in the playoffs we've seen him be you know almost generational two-way defenseman uh but we haven't seen that from in this season so a lot of pressure on him
0: fellas we gotta take our break here um let's do that quick and then we're gonna come back and keep close up this series uh you're listening to the hockey pedio cat streaming on the sportsnet radio network all right, we're back here in the Hockey cast. We're talking about the Leafs Lightning Series here on the cast first-round preview. Um, let's shift over to the forwards and talk about them. Han, I'm curious for your take on this because we've seen the Leafs mix and match. At the end of the season, they went back to playing Marner with Matthews and Taveras with Nylander, and I wonder how much of it was just, you know, at the end of the season, they had it locked up. They were just kind of pursuing individual milestones and trying to get Marner to 100 points and Matthews to 40 goals and so on and so forth because... It feels like to me watching them this year and then looking at the numbers at the end of the day that the more optimal combination was playing Marner with Tavares and then playing Nylander and Matthews together. And I think that would provide some interesting attacking options for them against this lightning blue line. But the last time we saw this Leafs play, they did the opposite. So I'm kind of not sure where their head's at heading into the series from like how they're going to deploy that that top six. Um.
2: Yeah, like like this is... uh an argument that that I can go either way on because I, I don't really know whether it's clear, um you know, who Marner is better off playing with. I just know that uh, both Matthews and Marner, they just love playing with each other. They're, you know, they're good friends. They, they see each other on the ice. If you watch the Leafs warm up, it's always Matthews and Marner passing a puck back and forth and, you know, getting loose before games. So there, there's just that element of chemistry or comfort or friendship that, Makes it so that maybe they prefer playing with, with each other, but, but you know Matthews and Nylander, or uh, Tavares and Nylander, they're, they're also really good together. So I think um, you know it, it's not the worst thing ever to have both options available. I, I'm mostly curious on whether O'Reilly ends up being kind of the best player on the third line or being more of a complementary player with Matthews or Tavares, because I think that's really what's going to come down to. Uh, if we go back to the conversation about uh, the lightnings deep pairs, they've only got, you know, Sergeyev and Hedman who can, who are really playing big minutes in every situation. So maybe if the Leafs load up on their top two lines, they're still going to be able to get matchups because in any given moment, they're maybe only looking to avoid headman.
0: Well, this season, Matthews and Nylander playing together at five on five, we're up 36 to 14. Uh, Tavares and Marner playing together were up 30 to 14 Tavares and Nylander were getting outscored 21 to 17. So I think, I think that's interesting. I'm with you. I think John Tavares looks like an entirely different player last year compared to that first round series last year, where he was clearly not healthy and was really laboring physically, especially in the first five games. He's been awesome this year. He's second in the league in inner slot shots, fifth in rebound chances, eighth in cycle chances. He's been dominant at what he made a career out of. And Fraser, I I think, especially with the Lightning really loading up Stamkos, Poin and Kucherov at five one five for the first time full-time in years. Um, I'd be very interested in just going power versus power with them with a Tavares, Barner, O'Reilly line and just trying to keep them pinned in a defensive zone and just forechecking the living daylights out of them and cycling the puck and then allowing Matthews and Nylander to come out and attack a bit more against a tired group that's on their back foot off the rush. I'm very interested, and I think that's an appealing uh, script to follow. I'm very curious to see if the Leafs are going to do that. Do you have any takes on kind of how they should be allotting that and who, how, like what matchups they should be trying to go for from a from a forward perspective?
1: Well, I think that makes a lot of sense, uh, especially considering they don't have the greatest left wing depth around like, you know, are, are they going to be putting, if they have O'Reilly as the third line center, does that mean that Kerfoot comes up? Does that mean that Nyes comes up? Does that mean that Yarncroke ends up playing? You know, like that you you end up adding maybe a player who's more suited to a third line and back into that top six at the same time, you know, I, I could see it backfiring only insofar as I think it would limit the upside of that bottom six where, you know, there are some times the season when the Leafs, even when they've been healthy, it has kind of looked like they had two first lines and two fourth lines. And I wonder whether the lightning would possibly be able to exploit those more kind of low event bottom six lines. Uh, especially since they're maybe not the most talented with the puck and they might be able to force some turnovers off them. Uh, But I think that's the kind of thing. I mean, one of the reasons that the Leafs acquired O'Reilly instead of going after one of the other options uh, was to give them a bit of versatility and and the ability to kind of make those adjustments within the series. So if they do decide to go power versus power and and they're noticing that it's giving them a disadvantage in other areas, they have the ability to separate O'Reilly and Taveras and and play O'Reilly at that third-line center spot. And maybe give themselves a, a true kind of shutdown third line uh, that still has the offensive upside that that I think O'Reilly still has even at this point in his career.
0: Mm. Well, Han, you were saying that Sergachev was kind of your X Factor guy you're watching this series. I think for me, it's Nylander just because the Lightning don't really have an answer or an equivalent to him, like as important as, as Matthews and Barner clearly are and as great as they are. When Nylander's humming and he's attacking off the rush and scored 40 goals this year, he was 12th in the league in rush chances. He was fifth, I believe, by Corey Schneider's tracking in, in, in total scoring chance contributions. He had a phenomenal year. He struggled for a bit towards the end there, but then turned it on in the final few games. If he's playing at his max capacity, I think he's such a difference maker for this team. And I think finding ways to to sort of free him up and get him in those advantageous scoring positions is kind of a key. So I think that's what I would be interested in the most um in this series from the least forwards
2: I think he'll be good in this series like I'm a big neilander believer I think he's shown in the past uh that he can he can play in a playoff setting even if it's uh tighter checking there's less space and it's more physical I think a lot of the the negative reputational things about him uh are are, are not as true as people are, are led mm-hmm. to believe uh he's a really good player and, and exactly like he's the kind of player who you know, even when uh, the Leafs' most productive fours are on the bench, he can come out there, come out and, and change the game. So, so, yeah, yes, like that's a player that I'm looking for for sure. Um, okay.
0: Is there anything else in this series that you guys are interested in? Goaltending, special teams, the two teams, power plays in particular? Um, anything else that, that kind of catches your eye that you feel like we should talk about before we move on to the next one?
1: No, uh, uh, oh, yeah, go ahead, Jack.
2: Yeah, uh, n- not too much, just because it- it's going to be essentially a rematch of last year's first round. I think in terms of special teams, I'm expecting either team to throw in a wrinkle here or there, but th- their special teams are-, are so well structured that I, I don't think there's going to be wholesale changes until maybe they're in dire straits and they have to make a change. But uh, in terms of special teams, I-, I expect it to be very similar to last okay. year. Well, here's um, a, here's th- th- a question for you, then, yeah. Jack. Go
0: ahead. Okay, so on, on that special teams and kind of it being the same, like this Leafs team has had a really good power play. I think they're fourth this season. We've seen it in the past in the playoffs. It can become a little stale or stagnant. And it's kind of like everyone just standing around and they're trying to do the same thing over and over again. And it's let them down. What are, I, I do think we will see some sort of adjustments or movement or moving pieces around or potentially even getting Gustafson on that top pair. Like I I do think they can't just do the exact same thing they did last year and in years past where it it has become a bit of an issue for a team that throughout the regular season is just, is just dominant on the power play.
2: So the, the one area where Tampa is really good on the power play is that once in a while, as a changeup, Hedman is going to fake the draw pass and carry the puck in himself for a scoring chance. Mm -hmm. Uh, If I remember correctly, they actually scored on the Leafs with like two seconds left on on one of the periods. Um, you'll never see Riley do that. Uh, Generally, he's, he's not going to do that except now that he's playing two to three minutes less uh, per game because of the Leafs improved defensive depth. Maybe he's going to feel like he has fresh enough legs to actually try to go coast to coast as a changeup. And if he can't do it, or if he won't do it, then Eric Gustafson could. So, so that's the area I I would look at.
1: Okay. I like that.
0: Uh, Fraser, do you have anything there from the goalies or, or maybe, um, you know lightning power play which was second in the league versus leafs penalty kill which was like third best in expected goals against i I don't know there's there's a couple interesting wrinkles here on on that but it as jack said we did see a lot of it last year so
1: yeah i wouldn't expect too too many changes until things start going sideways for either side i I think the goaltending battle is a little self-explanatory i mean uh Samsonov obviously had an, a, an awesome year. I'm assuming that they're not going to be playing a youth sports athlete uh, in the net for any of these games. <laughs> uh, Vasilevsky didn't have maybe his best year ever, but uh, I don't think anybody in the league has any ideas that he can't step it up in the playoffs or that he's at least not capable of it. Uh, it, it it's a bit of a wild card, but I mean, you could say that about any series. So ultimately this whole th- conversation might be moved because one or both goalies ends up, going off but uh well yeah the the standard
0: Vasilevsky set for himself where he's i think sport logic had him at like plus nine goals able above expected or something which is like the sixth or seventh best in the league and it's like ah yeah i don't know he's kind of had a so-so year this year and you're right compared to the the standard he set for himself but i I think he's been perfectly fine he had a stretch there where he he really was dominant simsonov I, i think you know certainly bang for the buck was awesome um i think the public metrics overrate his seasonal just a little bit because they underrate how good this Leafs defensive system is in terms of pressuring shots and what they give up. Now he did lead the league, interestingly enough in inner slots, a percentage, and I don't know what to do with that if anything, because I think he had struggled in it in years past. And I don't think we have any evidence to suggest that that's like a, a real skill that carries over year to year. But if he is seeing the puck well from in tight or whatever, whatever, however you want to portray it, that is an important skill against this lightning team that loves the pepper shots from that kind of inner slot, especially with points on the power play. So he's certainly going to be tested from there. And if, if he can hold up this year compared to years past in, in that specific stat, then that'll be huge for the Leafs chances. Yep, absolutely. Um, okay. Well guys, this is a blast. We, um we're going to let Jack Han go here because he's got, uh he's got other things to do. He's a, he's a busy guy. Uh, Jack Brazier and I are going to stay on and cover a few more series here. Uh, Han, I'll let you, give a quick plug to your new book, which ties into a lot of these conversations and also uh, let the listeners know know, whatever you want to promote or wherever you want to check out.
2: Yeah. So uh, I am, my girlfriend and I are expecting a baby. We're actually three days past due. So during the entire playoffs, I'll probably be up at odd hours changing diapers or making food for my girlfriend, uh, which means that I can't watch the games with you. So if you like to watch the games, quote-unquote with me then get my new hockey tactics 2023 ebooks uh, illustrated system sheets for all 32 teams so that you can look at the tactical matchup and have that at your fingertips while you're watching games mm. uh, so so you can you can find me on twitter uh, or gumroad and that's the best place to get my ebook
0: well good luck to you pal i was kind of hoping that while we were recording this would get the news and you'd have to rush off and it would it would uh top the uh, Johnny Goodrow going to Columbus news as, as the biggest breaking news in the PDO cast history. But um, alas uh, it'll wait for another day. Um, this was a blast, man. Thanks for coming on. Fraser, you and I are going to keep talking about these teams. So let's, let's get to it. All right. Now that we've only got one Jack on the show, I can, I can finally start referring to you as that is not, not using your last name. So this will be smoother sailing. Um, Jack, let's do Oilers Kings here. So, I think there's a lot to unpack here. Another rematch uh, from last year. I think both these teams assuming full health and and for the Kings that remains to be seen because Fiala and and Velarde have been out, but let's assume full health. Both teams I think are going to look different and also significantly improved from last year's matchup. Uh, Let's focus on the Oilers here to start since March 1st. They went 18, two and one. They had a plus 37 goal differential. Both were in the league best and I was excited about the addition of Matthias at Colm. I thought he would certainly help, but I've been, I got to admit, I've been blown away in these first 20 games or so, just how good, not only how good he's been, but how much he's allowed pretty much everything around him to fall into place on the depth chart and how just by being on the ice, he, everyone that shared the ice with him, has suddenly dramatically improved and everything around him has flourished. And it's just night and day compared to what, their depth chart and what their 5-on-5 team looked like before they acquired them.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've been talking on this podcast for years about how the Oilers needed a puck mover. The Oilers needed better rush defense. They needed more mobile defensemen. And it seems like they kind of got all of that in one guy. And like you said, you know, the, the the big turnaround of the team uh, and especially their crazy record since the deadline. So much of that is directly attributable to not only what he's done on the ice, but what he's allowed them to do with their defensive group when he's not there. Um, I, I, I mean, there's a reason I like, I, I did a poll yesterday about who people thought were just going to win the Stanley cup and the Oilers, you know, even though they're not even close to the first seed uh, came out ahead, you know, 30% of voters thought So a lot of pundits uh, have them as, as the cup favorites because of how they've looked lately. And as shocking as that would seem to anybody who heard us talk about Duncan Keith, you know, two summers ago, Uh it's it's not completely uh baseless. This isn't a pure, you know, oh, they're, they're just writing the power plays and the percentages and everything. Like, this has been a massive turnaround for this team uh just in the couple, last couple months. Uh, I mean, Ekholm himself, uh
0: 21 games, just at 5-on-5 alone, four goals, eight assists with him on the ice at 5-on-5. They're up 31-to-10. High danger chances are 106 to 62, and just as importantly, like on the one hand, he's added a certain level of kind of calmness and security. When you watch them play with and without the puck, like goes back and retrieves it so smoothly, gets it moving in the right direction, cleaning up and defending in front of his own net, just overseeing that everything runs smoothly for them. But then also the trickle down effect of all right, all of a sudden now. Darnell Nurse is playing like a minute less at 515. Uh, the difficulty of his and CC's minutes are more manageable. Bumps Kulak down to a third pair where his game is better suited for. And also, because he's playing with Evan Bouchard, and he gets to take over Barry's power play minutes as well, all of a sudden Bouchard's playing like three minutes more per game now. He's playing incredibly confidently. He's flourishing as well. And so all of it's been awesome. It's hilarious to think that there was legitimate commentary coming from Oilers media that was like, oh, I don't know, Barry meant a lot to this team. What's going to happen to their power play? Since then, they've gone from going scoring uh, historical 13.1 goals per 60 up to 13.6 with Barry with, uh, Bouchard on that top unit. Um, the reason why I think this Oilers team is for real and as well positioned to compete for a Stanley Cup as they ever have been in the Connor McDavid era is because you look at the depth and the minutes that they're playing without him, and let's loop Dracidal into this as well, it's night and day. These are their 5-on-5 goal shares without those two guys on the ice by season. 2018-19, 41.3. 29-20, 2019-20, 37.6. 2020-2021, 35%. 2021-2022, under Dave Tippett, 38%. That Woodcroft takes over midseason. The rest of the way, they go 46.7. And this year... They're outscoring teams 74-60 to 60 without McDavid and Dre Seidel on the ice at 5-on-5. Five five. And this is literally uncharted territory for the Oilers and obviously a key for them moving forward in their ability to... If they can play... We've always said this. If they can just play the other team to a draw when those guys aren't on the ice, I like their chances. If they're actually going to be winning those minutes, then obviously, I mean, they I'd expect them to just fully take off. And that's kind of what's happened in these past 20 games.
1: Yeah, and it's not like they have you know, this amazing personnel change, like they haven't acquired superstars to play in their bottom six. They don't have an HBK line or anything. Uh, you know, it's guys like Bugstad who they acquired at the deadline, Clem uh, Costin and Matthias de Ademark, uh Derek Ryan, who has been an underrated piece of that bottom six for a while. Uh, Ryan McLeod being a huge one and, and adding such a big, you know, offensive element and, and speed that they haven't had in their bottom six. Uh, you know, it's not, a murderer's row of superstar talent, but it's managed to click. I I think Pjokestad kind of allowed a lot of things to fall into place, you know, to a lesser extent than than at Colm, but still importantly, and if they are able to take that next step and and become a true cup contender this year and, and make a real run, I think it's going to be because they either were able to, like you said, play to a draw or, or even to an advantage when McDavid and Dreisaitl are getting those heavy, tough matchups, you know, when they're seeing the Danos and Kopitars and, and, you know, Matt Roy's and, and Gavrikov's now. Uh, you know, throughout the playoffs, if if they're able to get further than the Kings, which of course is no guarantee because the Kings are no slouches either. Yeah, it's
0: it seems like you're trying to segue us into talking about the Kings there, but I do have a few other Oilers notes before we do that. Yeah, I think the other change here is you know in that last year's matchup against the Kings in round one, Dreisaitl gets hurt early in that series, and with him on the ice at five-on-five five, when he was trying to center his own line. They got outscored nine to one in like a hundred minutes. And eventually they were like, all right, we just can't do this anymore. He played on McDavid's wing and the two of them dominated together and outscored teams 22 to nine. But that's clearly not an ideal way to be using those guys. You'd much rather have them anchoring their own lines at 5 And since March 1st, since that Colton came, part of it is getting Drysettle away from Having to play these tough minutes with Nurse and CeCe as the pair. Now he's playing much more of them with Bouchard and Ekholm out there with him. But whether it's that, whether it's improved health, all the concerns about him at 515 have gone out the window. He has 17 515 points in those 20 games. They're outscoring teams by 10 goals. He's got a 57% expected goal share. And so now if you're going to add that to this, you're going to say, okay, McDavid's playing at the caliber of the best player in the world. Dreisaitl is going to be dominating with his own line. And then on top of that, they're going to be doing fine without either of those guys on the ice. Now that's a formula for success. And so if Dreisaitl can keep this up, that that takes this team just to an entirely different stratosphere, I think, in terms of what we can expect from them. So I kinda, I'm kind of keeping an eye on that as well and see if that can continue because that's just something we didn't get to see um, during last year's postseason run.
1: Yeah, well, when it was skating around on one leg, yeah, and you know, even despite that, was putting up absolutely ridiculous numbers next to McDavid purely on the strength of his passing skill alone, essentially. Uh, yeah, I mean, if they can keep that one-two punch, and and if you know Ryan Nugent-Hopkins and Zach Hyman can can keep clicking next to McDavid the way they have lately, uh, if they keep getting as much out of Yamamoto as, as they have lately, as as well as kind of that running mate to. Uh, uh, to drive a saddle. I you know and, and obviously Vander Kane coming back from an injury has been I, I think maybe a bit of an underrated factor too that I mean that is a Stanley Cup winning top six and if the bottom six can keep up then this is a f- for real team that I mean people are obviously taking very seriously but uh has real potential to do some damage in the west well one final note the penalty kill. So.
0: When they're shorthanded, they're scoring 2.4 goals per 60, which is more than nine teams squared at 515 this season. And a change for them is after using McDavid like 38 minutes or something combined the past three years on a penalty kill, they played him over 100 minutes this year there. And he scored four goals, set up three. The Oilers broke even in those minutes. And part of that, I think, is you know more confidence in the team at 515. So they were able to keep his minutes slightly in check and tone it down a little bit and buy him an extra shift or two here or there with an advantage to score on the penalty kill. But I'm kind of curious to see if that carries over as well, because we saw during last year's playoff run, right? Like there's McDavid's usage in the regular season. And then when push comes to shove in elimination games, he goes and he plays like 28 and 25 minutes in game six and seven against the Kings last year to eliminate them. And so I think Woodcroft is smartly when he needs to going to be manufacturing as many shifts as humanly possible for McDavid in all these different areas of the game and so that's something to watch for as well but yeah i'm 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 fascinated by this team because for all the questions we had about them for years uh the 515 the depth the goaltending the defensive structure everything they've to some degree at least answered all of them and are as well positioned as we've ever seen to actually make some noise so uh keep that in mind okay let's pivot to the kings um they themselves made significant improvements at the trade deadline Gavrikov has been fantastic for them um since acquiring him, Corpusalo and Copley essentially alternated starts in a rotation and finally gave this Kings team above-average goaltending after they had the league worst for the first 50 or 60 games. And so if that can continue, they do have about as good of a shot, I think, as any team in the league of giving the Oilers um, trouble defensively because of the way they play, how they kind of clog up the neutral zone, and how good they are at skating as a group. And so there's some interesting combinations here that they can throw at the Oilers from a defensive perspective that actually can give them a bit of a threat in, in, in suppression. Whereas most teams just simply like wouldn't have the resources or the personnel or, or the system to really slow
1: this Oilers team down at all. I think this Kings team does have a chance to do so. Yeah. I think the, the injuries and maybe, you know, the, the relative no nameness of some of their best defensive defensemen. Uh, and, and I, I might did I say injuries or goaltending? Uh, the goaltending is the is, goal is what I meant to say yeah um yeah I think made people really underestimate how good this team is defensively uh because when your goalies are saving less than 90 percent of the shots your defense is never going to look good no matter how good they are um but they were the second best team in the league in limiting chances I think they're the second by expected goals against as well mm-hmm. uh and this isn't just you know a, a public versus private thing. I mean, if you look at their numbers when it comes to preventing cross-slot passes, high-danger passes, uh scoring chances off of passes, like they really clog up the middle of the ice extremely well and you know, obviously we know that the Oilers top players love sending those kinds of passes. Uh this is really like you said a, a difficult matchup for the Oilers at 5 on 5 and I think it's going to put uh, a lot of stress potentially on their power play if the Kings are able to kind of play them to a draw at 5-on-5, five five, which I think is eminently possible. I mean, we've seen Kopitar and we've seen Deno ha- make big moves in the playoffs before. Obviously, mm-hmm. I think McDavid got the one up on Deno quite a bit in that last uh, last year's first round series. It was, but...
0: Co- it was mostly on Kopitar, actually. I was looking at this. They played, Deno and McDavid played 37-5-on-5 five five head-to-head minutes last year, and the Oilers scored just one goal in that time.
1: OK, so maybe yeah. I was assuming. So, it, I think it was so in that case, yeah, well, there you go. So uh, so if they end up putting Dan, uh Kopitar on him, I mean, the thing is, if we are splitting up Dreisaitl and McDavid for the mm-hmm. entire series, as looks pretty likely, then that's going to put a lot of stress on both those guys uh, to be kind of elite shutdown forwards. Uh, and they've done it so far this year. I mean, the Kings have really been a remarkable defensive squad. They
0: really have. You you mentioned some of the stats there. I think Corey Schneider also had the Bruins as the only team giving up fewer entries leading to scoring chances as well. Um, It's Part of that is like that 1-3-1 neutral zone structure they have where they just force you – they like set up a a line like a brick wall and they just force you to get rid of the puck. And as McDavid showed, he's just one of the few people in the world that can sort of individually through his own sheer brilliance take the puck up the ice and kind of navigate his way through that. But for the most part – most guys just kind of have to quickly get rid of it and dump it in. And I'm not sure the Oilers necessarily want to do that. So that's something to watch for. And that was before, you know, Doughty wasn't available in that series. Gavrikov, they didn't have, and he's become like their second most used defenseman. And he's been phenomenal, as I said. So yeah, they have some interesting options here. I guess my question from the Kings perspective is, you know, there's the uncertainty about Fiala's health and and they really need his speed and playmaking. Velarde's health, uh, I think he's like their best shot maker um and, and potentially goal scorer that they have and so if they don't have those two guys you look at their profile and they're a team that carries the puck a ton uh, the sabers are the only team with a with a higher carry in percentage they had fifth most shots off the rush but much like last year they're only 23rd in turning those entries into scoring chances they're 20th in actual raw entry volume they like to play most of the game in the neutral zone and kind of i think that's why people say oh the kings are kind of boring to watch because that's all they see They can have a certain fun north-south element to them, but there isn't a ton of creativity or east-west wiggle to their game. And they're going to have to score as good as their defense is. The Oilers will get theirs, especially in the power play. They're going to have to match them goal for goal. And if they're not going to have full health up front, I am a bit worried about where that source of offense is going to come from from them. Because they're going to get the shots, they're going to get the looks, but it's a different caliber of look compared to what their opponent's getting.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and the Oilers are... Also, I mean, especially lately, have been a quite strong defensive team, and obviously the goaltending is a wild card. Stuart Skinner has had a bit of an up-and-down season, but I, I think it's pretty obvious that they're going to be trusting him and Ned and not uh, and not Jack Campbell. Um, we'll see if he's able to completely hold up. I mean, the, the Kings do have some solid finishing talent, uh, even if they're maybe not the most creative at uh, creating passes to to make the goalies, opposing goalie's life more difficult. Uh but like you said, I, I, one thing that was interesting to me when I was looking at this Kings team and looking at their stats and everything is that we've been talking for so long about, Oh, you know, the Kings, like they have this rebuild and, you know, they're adding all this uh, high end talent and I'll look at their prospect pool from a couple years ago. And then you look at the guys who have been really their biggest movers shakers offensively on that forward group. And it kind of still is that top six of your Kopitar's and Kemp Bays and you know, Deno. like the, the older guys are still kind of driving the bus. So one thing that I'm kind of curious about as a wild card is what we see from Quinton Byfield mm. uh, in this series. Because, you know, the, the Kings are one of the hotter teams in the league down the stretch in the same way that the Oilers were. And adding Byfield into that top six, I think, was an interesting move for them, having him play on the wing. Uh, and, and I just kind of wonder whether if the Kings are able to make this a difficult series for the Oilers, whether he has a little bit of breakout percentage, because I think his big issue so far has been that he's not shooting the puck very much. And when he does shoot the puck, it's not going in at a very high rate. Uh, But I wonder whether we might see him take a little bit of a leap uh, in the spotlight here, which would be interesting to see.
0: Yeah. I'm very
1: curious to see that as well. And there's going to be a, For all the diehards out there, there's going
0: to be one game in this series where Blake Lazotte just goes absolutely off. So I'm looking forward to that as well. We could, you can put that in the bank. Um, is there anything else on this series that you think is worth noting, or do you want to move on to Stars Wild?
1: No, I think we're taking too long on all these series. So we uh, can, we certainly uh, we can leave it at
0: that. Okay, my big question, we're going to do Stars Wild, we're going to do Hurricanes Islanders. So I think we can we can get through these relatively quick, at least for our standards. Uh, big question, can the Wild do enough defensively to slow down Dallas's top line in particular because no one has really had any success doing so in the past two years. And for this Wild team, they struggle so much themselves at 515 to generate offense that if they can't and that star's top line just runs roughshod on them, I just don't think they're going to be able to create enough 515 offense themselves to keep up in this series. So it's going to be incredibly important
1: for them to at least like manage it and keep them relatively in check. And I'm just not sure if they're going to be able to do so. Yeah, I mean, if anybody has the defensive personnel to do it in those kinds of matchup minutes, you would think it would be the Wild mm-hmm. with, you know, Brodine and Spurgeon and Ek, And, you know, this is a team that theoretically should be designed for the mission of shutting down one specific line. But what might give them trouble is the depth of the Dallas Stars' increasingly at least, you know, veering towards almost competence compared to what we've seen from them in the past. (laughs) Right, compared to last year in particular, yeah. Well, exactly. You know, Jamie Benn kind of returning into being a high-end chance creator. Uh, Wyatt Johnson and Tidal Andrea breaking out, I think, a little bit, especially in the second half. Uh, I I think that that's given the Dallas Stars maybe some options if, you know, that first line happens to be snake bitten or if the Wild are able to target them. Um, But, I mean, I I think it's pretty clear that the Wild, if they're going to win this series... Either it's going to have to be because Kaprizov went off and just decided to take it over for himself uh, or because either their defenseman or, or their goaltending was able to shut down that top line and, and maybe you know play the rest to a draw. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up why Johnson there. You mentioned uh, Clinton Byfield in the previous
0: series. He's my breakout candidate here. He scored 21 515 goals as a 19-year-old, which is very impressive. And And every time I watch him play, I come away just... Loving sort of the creativity and, and niftiness to his game. So I think he's gonna make some big plays in this series on that second line. But yeah, I mean, that top line is the best top line in the league. Like they've outscored teams 103 to 59 in the past two years. They generated 4.1 goals per 60 this year alone. And they just live in the high danger area around the net. They get off such a high percentage of, of quality looks there. And the wild, as you mentioned to their credit, defend the front of the net really well. Philip Gustafson had like a 940, say percentage of 515 five this year uh, in his 38 games and both Spurgeon and Brodine, like what team has the luxury of having two guys who are amongst the best from a suppressions perspective in the league and are able to just kind of have those guys anchor their own pair and make sure to have one of them at the, on the ice pretty much at all times. That's a huge luxury for them. I'm curious to see what Joel Erickson X health like and whether he's able to play some of these matchup minutes as well. But I don't know. Like, I I just struggle with this wild team because they're 29th in the league in five on five offense. The only teams worse than in this season were the Ducks, Blue Jackets, and Blackhawks. And those are quite literally the three top Connor Bedard lottery teams. And so it's just, it's kind of uncharted territory in that regard where Kaprizov's awesome. We saw him carry them for a while. Then he goes out, Matt Boldy steps up and scores a ton of goals in his absence. And But they've never really, so far this year, been able to put that together where both guys were humming at the same time and generating enough sustainable five-on-five offense. And so I just don't know where that scoring is going to come from in this series, in particular because the Stars themselves have a good defensive environment and a top goalie themselves. So it's not like that's a liability for them. So the Wild are a bit in tough here because it feels like from every perspective, they're going up against a team that for everything they do well, the Stars do it just as well or kind of slightly better.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, like you said, like the wild, they're a pure kind of ship and chase team offensively, but they're not the Carolina Hurricanes. They're not the Florida Panthers. Like they are not translating those loose pucks into opportunities. Uh, you know, they're decent at generating shots off of extended possessions, but there really isn't, you know, a lot of talent in the lineup other than Kaprizov that can really kind of take over and, and generate chances out of nothing. Uh, which is obviously pretty different from what the Dallas Stars can offer. So, you know, like you said, I mean, Jake Gettinger, obviously he had, you know, one of the best losing playoff series of all time last year against the Calgary Flames and he followed it up. Very nice season this year. Mm -hmm. Uh, We'll see, you know, whether maybe that could be an X factor, maybe, you know, I mean, mean, just like with any series, if the goaltending falters, then anything can happen. Uh, But at least entering the series on paper, the Wild are at a pretty massive offensive disadvantage compared to this team. And and like you said, I think that the Stars, you know, are comparable at least and uh, maybe more well-rounded at best uh, defensively compared to the Wild. Yeah. I mean, the
0: Stars had a weird year because they led the league in, I think they won 29 games by three or more goals. Like when they won, they were just like demolishing opponents, but they lost 21 goal games and kind of struggled in some of those close coin flips. I think that's probably more so sort of random and they're due for positive regression as opposed to being like an indicator that they can't win close games, but the wild in this series in particular, I think for them to win, they're going to have to keep these games as low scoring as possible and as close yeah. as possible. And so that's going to test that at least. Right. And, and I'm sure there is an element of like, Oh, we just lost so many of these close games this year. Eventually that does kind of start bugging you and eating away at you. So I guess that's something to keep an eye on, but I, I'm not sure really what to make of that stat. Um, you know, from, from a defensive perspective, I don't understand what the stars are doing with this Ryan Suter thing. I've been talking about this all year. I know in the grand scheme of things, it's not that big of a deal, but they finally move Miro Haskin in to his strong side, right? They play him with Colin Miller. They play fantastically as a top pair. They're dominating. And then at some point this season, they're like, all right, let's move Miro back to his offside just so we can accommodate Ryan Suter and play him on the top pair. And they're feeding Suter. These like second unit power play minutes, top pair defensive minutes. Now, And he's just a black hole offensively. And if anything in this series, their big advantage is going to be able to just run up the score on the wild if their offense is really humming. And I don't love having that much exposure to Suter in this series. And on the other hand, the wild are going to be playing Klingberg and and that's a bit of a revenge series. So it's kind of like a weird reversal of fortunes for those two guys playing against their old teams in this series. I I thought that was kind of like an interesting note to keep in mind, but clearly Suter is playing a bigger role for this team than, than Klingberg is playing for the wild at this point
1: yeah and I think that's been something to follow with Heiskin all year is that I mean he's gotten a lot of Norris attention because the points have finally come for him uh you know especially on the power play I think he's starting to produce quite a bit more than we're used to from him but for some of the reasons that you said including playing his offside the five on five impact really hasn't been you know whether you're looking at the the macro level impacts or or even just kind of the micro stats, hasn't really been comparable to what he's done in the past uh so that question for me is you know we've seen him completely break out in the playoffs before and, and just take over like he did in that cup run a couple of years ago um but is the situation around him going to allow him to be that dominant uh as we know he can be if he is maybe having to play babysitter for a declining uh ryan Suter offensively or if or if he's even just having to take on too much of a burden because uh the guy he's playing next to can't contribute offensively the way that he wants to
0: yeah, I wouldn't say Suter's declining so much at this point as the decline has already happened and he just plateaued at that bottom level. I, I'm I'm not sure it's going to get much worse. It, it's already just, just bad. I just don't understand why it's like a very self-inflicted, unnecessary wound. It's almost like Pete DeBoer was like, hmm, what would Rick Bonas have done in my spot? And then just double down on that for no reason in particular. So frustrating, but I do like the Stars team. And and that at the risk of looking ahead and getting getting ahead of ourselves, I'm I would be really excited about a Stars abs Round two series. I think that would be a fascinating one. So hopefully we do get to see that. Okay. Let's do our final series here today, The Hurricanes and the Islanders. Save this one for last, not because I don't think it's interesting, but just because I don't know how many new insights we can provide here. Cause especially from the hurricanes, it's kind of the same story as it's been for how many years now? And so I'm I, I think they will be okay from a talent perspective getting by this Islanders team, but it is obviously a big concern looking at their offensive profile and then having to go up against Ilya Sorokin and facing the realistic possibility that there's going to be some games where Sorokin just has like 50 saves and the Islanders can still win, even though they only get 20 shots themselves. So I guess that's something to, that's kind of like the headliner for this series. And I think every preview
1: of it needs to be sort of centered around that. Yeah. Well, I mean, Stefan Nathan and Jesper Kalkiney, I mean, on your second line is not going to inspire a massive amount of confidence in the ability of offense. You're going to be able to create. I think it's fair to say, um, I mean, it really is a shame for this team who I don't think the window is, is near closing by any means, but I think this is a really important season for them to have to face this level of injuries to players like patch And then obviously the devastating one is Fetchnikov, mm-hmm. which has set off kind of everybody turning on the hurricanes in the past, uh, in the past month or so. Um, I mean, like you said, we know how the Hurricanes play. We know how the Islanders play as well. Uh, The big difference for the Islanders this season, I think, compared to last season in terms of how they've played in the regular season. Uh, And when I say last season, I guess I mean, you know, the Barry Trotz seasons previously where we kind of got used to them as being a, uh, you know, a a counterattack team uh, after those long offensive zone possessions against uh, you know, their offense or their rush offense specifically really, really fell off this year. But if you look at the players who were able to create off the rush for them, it's the usual suspects. I mean, it's Barzal, who obviously missed a lot of time, mm-hmm. uh, this year and, and is going to be back for the series that's expected. Uh, Nelson, uh, Zizekas, Pajo, you know, Horvat to a lesser extent. I mean, these are the guys who you can already imagine getting sprung for two on ones or three on twos, uh, after you know, a bobbled pass to the point uh you know ends up hopping over brent burns stick uh we've seen this so many times before in these islanders series where they just absorb shot after shot after shot they just lock down the the inside of the zone and then they wait for the mistake to be made so they can run off on the rush uh and i mean i when i wrote my preview for this series i gave the islanders uh, my prediction in seven games. And I thought that was a really novel decision for me. And then I looked around and I found out that everybody was pegging that as being the, uh, the upset of the first round yeah. of the playoffs. So I feel less original now, but we've just seen the Islanders do this too many times before. And, and I feel like the hurricanes do not have a lot of momentum entering these playoffs, even though I think not many people would dispute that they are on paper a better team than the Islanders.
0: Yeah. Yeah, well, speaking of that transition as well, Pierre Engvall's been a godsend for the Islanders as well, just being able to sort of transport the puck up the ice and create off the rush for them. And, and he's chipped in with five five-on-five goals himself since coming over the deadline. But I know Leafs fans are, are listening to this and and being like, well, he played 17 playoff games for us and had zero goals and one assist in that time. And it was a, viewed as a liability. So something to keep in mind. But yeah, that line of him, Nelson, and Palmieri was, was phenomenal for them down the stretch. And I guess, you know, from the Hurricanes' perspective – part of the um the strategy for them, especially in these series where they have home ice, we watched it last year unfold, right? Where the splits for them home away were significant because at home, they were able to just load up. At the time, they had Nino Rider playing with them, I believe, but it was like Jesper Fast and Jordan Stahl as their checking line. And they were just glued to the other team's top line. So against the Bruins, it was against Bergeron's line. Against the Rangers, it was against Mika Zabinajad's line. And for those teams that didn't have that much depth, that was sort of uh like it was really difficult for them to overcome in those games and that's why the hurricanes won so many home playoff games last year in this series yeah. i assume with barzell back that will be the assignment right it'll be like especially if is playing with horvat and lee that's clearly like their go-to line for the islanders up front but in a, in a in a both good and bad way in a good way for the islanders in this series they're not like that reliant offensively on one line they get unexpected sources of offense. They kind of opportunistically create, as you said, they have sort of depth and balance from, un, from, you know, unsuspecting uh, sources. And so in this case, it's, it's not exactly, exactly cut and dried for the hurricanes to be like, all right, we're just going to play Jordan stall against this one line on the Islanders. And if we shut them down, they're going to get nothing because then all of a sudden their third line is randomly going to jump up and score two or three, five on five goals. And you just can't really prepare for that. So. It is a, it, it's a bit of a curveball for the Hurricanes in terms of the way they typically like to, to play the defensive assignments.
1: Yeah, well, especially because, I mean, Carolina is, was just such a good defensive team. You know, for all the questions that we pose about whether some of their offensive numbers are a little fraudulent at worst or misleading at best, uh, they are undeniably an amazing defensive team. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they defend... Every which way they win every battle, they retrieve the puck, uh, they limit shots, they limit chances, they possess it, they're great on the penalty kill as well. Uh rush defense and zone defense. I you know, across the board, you're, you're looking at great numbers for them, uh, which is why we talk about the Anders having to be opportunistic. But, you know, for me, that means that my X factor in this series is is Barzal and Horvat specifically. I think that pairing, because we haven't seen them too much together. Uh, and I think the Islanders have a lot staked on those two really working as a duo in the long term. Um, you know, I mean, they looked good in the very small sample that we had of them. And I think that there's, you know, reason to believe that they would be able to work effectively together. Uh, but I think this is really where they need Barzal to kind of take another leap. And, you know, it's, it's nice that he, carries the puck in. It's nice that he kind of circles the perimeter and looks for passes. But I, I think ultimately to this point, especially recently, he has just kind of deferred to those perimeters, deferred to the point shots, the low to high passes is too much. Uh, and, and that's what's kind of held him back from being a, a real star player in this league that's able to produce at a high level uh, more than anything else. And, you know, with Horvat as kind of that, player who can really get to the slot and create chances in tight. I think this series would be a good opportunity for him to maybe break through uh and and make a huge difference. Like you said, he's going to have the toughest assignments against him. Uh, I'm sure the Hurricanes recognize that he's their by far their biggest threat in terms of actually establishing offensive zone possessions and not just creating those kind of uh counterattack opportunities. Uh, So he's going to get, you know, Slavin sicked on him. He's going to have Jordan Stahl, like you said, going after him. But that is one thing that I would like to see in this series would be Matthew Barzell, maybe taking that next step and really uh, establishing himself.
0: Well, you mentioned him carrying the puck. He might be the only one in this series that actually does so because these are the two most dump heavy teams in the league. I think we're going to see a lot of dumping and chasing from the, uh, from the hurricanes perspective, you know, they create so much in particular off the forecheck and in this series I wonder if like the Isles are going to just be very comfortable with punting the puck up the ice and not even uh engaging in that at all and just like trying to have this game played as much in the neutral zone as they can and so maybe part of that forecheck offense isn't as valuable if the if the the defense they're forging against isn't even trying to pass it to each other and they're just purely just dumping it out and and and, and that's sort of playing a live another day so I'm curious to see how that's played I think from the Hurricanes goalies I think it's also interesting because you know we talk about how Sorokin is such a strength in particular in this matchup against the Hurricanes for the Canes I'm curious to see what they do not only in this series but beyond because I assume it'll be Freddie Anderson to start and that makes me very wary because he's known for sort of giving up bad goals and inopportune blunders. And especially against this Islanders team, I could really foresee them just throwing pucks from weird angles and, and beating him and, and Frey Anderson having this like puzzled look on his face after. And, and I I would personally play Kochekov the most, but he's clearly the unproven and the youngest. And I I think has to work his way up that pecking order, but I'd like to see them use him. Just, I think he provides the most upside, even, even uh, compared to Ranta, but yeah, the Hurricanes have a bit of a, a dilemma there themselves in this series compared to the Islanders, where it's like Sorokin is just going to be in there and, and the volume he's going to face is going to be through the roof.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
2: Um, okay. Anything else in the
0: series or uh, do you wanna do you wanna sign off here?
1: No, I think we can make your editor's
0: job a little easier. <laughs> Let's do it. All right, man. Uh this was a blast. I'm glad we got to do these five series. I'll let you um let the listeners know where they can check you out because you previewed all these for us at EP ringside as well.
1: Yep. So I I finished writing uh, the eight playoff preview articles for the first round, uh, breaking down every series, uh, using a combination of kind of macro level stats, as well as uh, Corey Schneider's uh, manually tracked data, you know, comparing teams, offense to teams, defenses, instead of kind of offense to offense and defense to defense to try to figure out, you know, some of the imbalances that we've talked about here. Uh, I, I, We'll never forgive the Western Conference for not resolving their playoff matchups until, until 10 Friday p.m. Night. on yeah. Friday night when I had this due on Saturday uh, Saturday morning at noon. Uh, but I made it through, uh, and I'm very proud of myself for that. You can also follow me uh, at JFreshHockey on Twitter. I will presumably be talking plenty about the uh, playoffs, even if my beloved Penguins will not be taking part. All right, buddy. Well, this is a blast. Thanks for taking the time.
0: Go out and enjoy that sun finally. Uh, we will be back. Tomorrow on Tuesday, with another episode of the PDOcast, we'll preview the final three remaining round one series and then looking forward to just uh, enjoying and indulging in this ride of the postseason. So, thank you for listening to the Hockey PDOcast as always, streaming on the Sportsnet Radio Network.